Last time uh, we spoke about John Wycliffe and the dawning of the light in England. 1300 and something, I forget. Um, his works were by no means confined to the British Isles. His books had a far-reaching impact, and so did his example. In 1404, two gentlemen from Oxford, England, graduates of Oxford, made their way to low country in Eastern Europe called Bohemia. Bohemia does not exist today as a country. Uh, it is located in modern-day Czech Republic. These gentlemen, scholars, theologians, <clears throat> desired to have a public disputation on the supremacy of the Pope. The authorities silenced them and would not allow it to happen. Their operation was shut down. However, not willing to give up their objective, they thought of what other means they could use to get the point across. They had studied art as well as theology, and so they thought, well, let's try something else. In an area open to the public, they drew two pictures. Two pictures, that was all. One picture was the triumphant procession of Jesus that last Sunday riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, wearing travel-worn garments, with his disciples following behind. So this is the picture that they drew. With naked feet, dirty, travel-worn garments, proceeding to Jerusalem. On the other picture was a pontifical procession. Gold, jewelry, riches everywhere. The Pope on a stallion adorned marvelously, the horse. The Pope wearing the triple crown. Uh, signifying his authority over heaven, earth, and hell. Trumpeters going before him and cardinals following after him in dazzling array. So these were the two pictures. The rich servant and the poor master. And people stood to watch, look at these drawings. And what the two men could not accomplish with all their eloquence and learning and attainments, uh, they succeeded in doing with those two pictures. Because those pictures were enough to draw out the discussion and to get people thinking, uh, who are we following here? How could, how could the jurisdiction of the servant, professed servant, the vicar, extend beyond that of the master, Jesus. The commotion in Prague became so great that the gentlemen had to leave for their safety. One of the individuals who came to gaze at these drawings was John Huss, and he was impacted by them. Huss was born 1369 in uh Bohemia, and he took his name Hus from the place he was born. And in Bohemian, Hus signifies goose. And so he became known as 
the goose, the bohemian goose. And uh, this theme extends throughout the story. In fact, at his trial, uh, there are accounts of Ecclesiastes, you know, the, the bishops and cardinals saying, we've already plucked the goose's feathers, now let's cook him. You know, they took him out of the dungeon. and Let's condemn him, let's cook the goose. Uh, he did not dream, however, that he would end up fighting the church, not at a young age, not even at a middle age. He was born in a poor family. His father died when he was young. His mother accompanied him to the university in Prague. She had brought a gift to give to the rector of the university, but she had lost it along the way. And distraught over this misfortune, she knelt down with her boy, John, on the road, invoking for him the blessing of their father in heaven, that God would protect the boy, guide him into all, tr all truth, and make him a success. And needless to say, since we're talking about him, that prayer was answered. Though if she lived to see what exactly was the fulfillment, she would have been uh, bothered by it. Huss distinguished himself with his attainments in academia. He became a bachelor. Uh, he became a bachelor of divinity and a master of arts, and he became a priest. Later, he became a professor and a rector of the university at which he uh, studied. You know, reading about these stories, it convicts me, because Wycliffe, John Huss, Zwingli, Luther, they were all successful at school, and I feel like I've just been lazy. But uh, anyway, convicts, it convicted me. Anyway, he became a professor and rector of the university. He became a priest, a confessor to the queen. Um, he was also appointed preacher of what was called the Chapel of Bethlehem. Chapel of Bethlehem was the name of the chapel in Prague. Uh, Bethlehem means, means house of bread. It was a tradition at the Chapel of Bethlehem that the preacher would preach from the Bible in the language of the people, the common tongue, which was extraordinary. This was actually outlawed by Pope Gregory VII a few hundred years before. By one of his decrees, he said that after a long Bible study, he had come to the conclusion that it was pleasing to the omnipotent that his worship should be conducted in an unknown language and that many evils and heresies had resulted from not following this rule. I'm interested in the study guide for that Bible study because I've never seen anything close to that. And so public uh, worship in Bohemian language was outlawed but not entirely eradicated. Huss found himself obliged to preach to the people from the scriptures. And that led him as the preacher further down on the path of reform. And he preached against the evils of the times and the evils of the people. Um, the 
the scandals of the time, especially in Prague, even in Prague, were, were enormous. All kinds of crime uh, flourished, profligacy, uh, licentiousness. The people were in darkness. You would think, since Rome had a law, had, it had a moral code, it had its own law, uh, the, the changed Ten Commandments, it had its ordinances, it had all of that. Uh, despite all of that, it was actually beneficial, let me put it this way, for the people to be sunk in sin. Because that creates dependency. Because now you are caught in your sin. And where do you go to get your help? You go to the church. And you go on your pilgrimages and your masses and your confessions. And you go and you, you, you go to the jubilees. And you're a faithful patron of the church. And all was well as long as the church could fulfill its end of the bargain, which was to get you in paradise. Huss, however, had a different name. He wanted the people actually free from their sins. He preached from the Bible. He unsparingly denounced the evils of the time, made him unpopular for a while. Jerome, another man, brother in Bohemia, was a scholar. He had been to England. And he had brought back with him the books of Wycliffe. And so now Bohemia was infected with this Wycliffean heresy. Being facetious. And the prince, uh, the, sorry, the queen of, Bohe- of England was a Bohemian princess. And she also uh, favored Wycliffe and the spread of his writings. And then came the time when the two gentlemen came and they painted their drawings. And Huss saw them, and he realized that the infection went deeper than he thought. And he started a preaching against the abuses of the hierarchy. During this time in England, there were not one but three popes uh, simultaneously reigning. Now, that's a problem. You can't have three vicars. (laughs) There should only be one. There should only be one successor of St. Peter at one time. The French had their own, the Spaniards and the Italians. They each had their own popes. And they thundered uh, against each other. And accordingly, all of Europe was filled with distraction and anarchy. Reading from the historian, he writes, The chroniclers of the time labor to describe the distractions, calamities, and woes that grew out of this schism. There's three popes reigning. Europe was plunged into anarchy. Every petty state was a theater of war and rapine. The rival popes sought to crush one another, not with the spiritual bolts only, condemning each other as antichrist and and all of that, but with temporal arms also. They went into the market to purchase swords and hire soldiers. And as this could not be done without money, they opened a scandalous traffic in spiritual things to supply themselves with the needed, needed gold. Pardons dispensations and places in paradise they put up to sale in order to realize the means of equipping their armies for the field. The bishops and inferior clergy, quick to profit by the example set them by the popes, enriched themselves by simony. Do you remember that word, simony? If you were here last time. Simony comes from Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, who attempted to buy the Holy Spirit. 
of the apostles. And Peter rebuked him, said, Your money perish with you because you think the free gift of God can be bought with money. Acts chapter 8. At times they made war on their own account, attacking at the head of armed bands the territory of a rival ecclesiastic or the castle of a temporal baron. A bishop newly elected to Hildesheim, having requested to be shown the library of his predecessors, was led into an arsenal in which all kinds of arms were piled up. Those, said his conductors, are the books which they made use to defend the church. Imitate their example. This is Christianity at the time. Pope John XXIII, who was the Italian pope, later he was stricken off the list for being a false pope, because you'll see he was uh, deposed at the Council of Constance. Um, he sent out, he proclaimed a crusade against the king of Hungary. He said, if you go on my, if you fight my war, uh, you get all your sins forgiven. And if you die in my war, you get to go to heaven. You hear that today too. Other religious groups, not Christian. <laughs> it was the same indulgence that was provided to those who went to die and fight in the Holy Land. And Bohemia was split by this. The, the king and the nobles were for wanted to be with the Pope and the people were with the side of the King of Hungary. And Hus saw that the corruption went down all the way into the structure of the church. And he read the writings of Wycliffe, the English reformer. He began to follow more and more the reforms advocated by Wycliffe. He believed the author of those books to be a sincere Christian. And he followed his reforms almost literally. Word of Huss's preaching made their way to Rome. He was summoned to appear for the trial of heresy. The queen and the nobles interceded on their behalf, saying, no, no, he, let him go by deputy, because what's going to happen if he goes there in person? He's going to die. The pope would have none of it. This was John the Twenty-Third. We'll get to him later. He was a criminal. He was, he was the worst criminal of everybody. We'll get to him later. He refused. He excommunicated John Huss, and he laid the city of Prague under interdict. You remember, that's like a curse that goes out over a region. All the services of religion are suspended. Anybody who dies in that region during the interdict cannot go to heaven. They are left, their soul is left to wander in limbo or someplace. Marriages cannot be conducted in the churchyard. The people saw themselves as cut off from God and they saw as Hus. They saw Hus as the reason for it. And accordingly, he left. Later he came back and he teamed up with Jerome, the one who had brought the writings of uh, Wycliffe. Uh, Jerome was a very learned man. He was a Bohemian knight. And while Jerome would uh, debate in the schools and in the public assemblies, Wycliffe, con uh, sorry, Huss continued to write and preach from his chapel in Bethlehem. He saw that the pardons that the priest, the absolution, had it, it had to be come after the absolution of Christ. You cannot absolve somebody and then expect to God to follow up and ratify your decision. No, you ratified the decision of God when you saw that the person was repentant. Huss 
appeal to the Bible for his supreme authority. He ended up rejecting the authority of the church as infallible. He had no choice. The popes were fighting each other. How could, how could three of them be infallible? And if, and if one of them was the right one, how come you can't tell them apart? They're all doing and saying the same things. He objected to the, the, the um, confession exacted by members of the church, which says, I believe in the Pope and the saints. He said, no, you only believe in God. He ridiculed, he, he was against the, the veneration of the, the saints and the dead, saying that the, their worshipers would adorn the statues while leaving the poor living to suffer in poverty. The Emperor Sigismund saw the evils that were distracting Europe and the heresies that was ripping it apart. So he called the General Council to be called to be convened in Constance, Germany. 14, 14 or 15. The three popes were summoned to appear before it. Only one of them did. The, other was, the others were too afraid, so they sent deputies. The leader of the new opinions, the, her the, the chief heretic, as, as he was uh, uh, accused, John Huss, he was also summoned before the council. And Huss made his way to Constance, feeling that it was to his death. He had obtained a safe conduct from the king of Bohemia. He had received a safe conduct from the emperor Sigismund himself. I'd like to read that to you, or part of it. It reads, To all ecclesiastical and secular princes, etc., and to all their subjects, we recommend to you with full affection, to all in general and to each particular, the Honorable Master John Huss. Uh, skipping along, calling on you to allow him to pass Sojourn, stop, and return freely and securely, providing him even, if necessary, with good passports for the honor and respect of the imperial majesty, given at Spires this 18th day of October, the year 1414, the year of our reign in Hungary. Huss had this document from the emperor promising him that he would arrive safely, safely remain, and safely leave. Constance for the trial of his heresy. When Huss arrived, the Pope, who was there already, um, assured him that no injustice would be done, John Huss. Shortly thereafter, in spite of these repeated and solemn declarations, Huss was seized, imprisoned, and thrown into a loathsome dungeon in a monastery. By his room flowed the sewage of the monastery, which made him ill. He became very sick and almost died. The Pope did not want him to die too soon, so he sent his own physicians to take care of him. By this time, the people of Bohemia decided that this was a man who was on their side. They saw his blameless life. His teachings, they saw the evils in Christianity that he was seeking to correct. And they declared him to be one of their own. 
when he was arrested, people, princes, nobles flew into outrage and appealed strongly to the council that Huss would be sent free. The emperor did not want to have to break his promise to Huss because he had promised him safety. But the council members, the cardinals, the priests, the, the bishops, they played on his fears. They reasoned with him. They said, no, no, you had no right to make a promise without our authority. The greater good demands that Huss be uh, imprisoned despite your promise. And the council has the authority, being above you, emperor, to free you from your oath. And eventually Sigismund went along. And he allowed Huss to be tried. Huss was brought out in chains before the council. His books were open, and he was asked if he, was, if he acknowledged being the writer of them. This he readily did. The articles of crimination were next read. Some of these were fair statements of Huss's opinions. Others were exaggerations or perversions. And others, again, were wholly false imputing to him opinions which he did not hold and which he had never taught. Huss naturally wished to reply, pointing out what was false, what was perverted, and what was true in the indictment preferred uh, against him, assigning the grounds and adducing the proofs of support of these sentiments which he really held and which he had taught. He had not uttered more than a few words when there arose in the hall a clamor so loud as completely to drown his voice. Huss stood motionless. He cast his eyes around on the excited assembly, surprise and pity rather than anger visible on his face. Waiting till the tumult had subsided, he again attempted to proceed with his defense. He had not gone far till he had occasion to appeal to the scriptures. The storm was at that moment renewed and with greater violence than before. Some of the fathers shouted out accusations, Others broke into peals of derisive, derisive laughter. Again, Huss was silent. He is dumb, said his enemies, who forgot that they had come there as his judges. I am silent, said Huss, because I am unable to make myself audible amidst so great a noise. All, said Luther, referring to his characteristic style to this scene. All worked themselves into rage like wild boars. The bristles on their backs stood on their end. They bent their brows and gnashed their teeth against John Huss. Finally, one of the doctors of the council cornered Huss. He said, if the council said that you had only one eye, you would, be ha you would have to believe the council, wouldn't you? He said, no, I can't do that as long as I'm in my senses without sinning against my conscience. That was it. Because John Huss would not submit implicitly to the council as to the authority of God, he was condemned. He was removed from being a priest. Previous to this, the council had actually de deposed the pope who had arrested uh, John and actually committed him to the same prison 
Pope John the 23rd was convicted. I have the list. For hiring a physician to poison Alexander V, his predecessor. Further, that he was a heretic, a simoniac, simoniac so simony, the selling the indulgence, selling the pardons for money. A liar, a hypocrite, a murderer, an enchanter, a dice player, and an adulterer. And there was a whole list of crimes that they would not read, saying that they were not fit to be mentioned. The rival popes were deposed. A new pope was selected, Martin V. At one of the sessions of this council, Wycliffe, the, the English reformer, was condemned as a heretic. His books were burned, and he was condemned himself to be burned, only that he had been dead for some 40 years. So all they could do was dig up his remains and burn them, which they did. And they threw his ashes into a river. They proceeded to condemn Pas. They put them back in the dungeon. From that moment, Hus had peace, Wiley writes, deeper and more ecstatic than he had ever before experienced. I write this letter in prison, writing to a friend, and with my fettered hand expecting my sentence of death tomorrow, when with the assistance of Jesus Christ we shall meet again in the delicious peace of the future life, you will learn how merciful God has shown himself towards me how effectually he has supported me in the midst of my temptations and trials. The next day he was brought out again to the council. A bishop preached a sermon, and he used the scripture that the body of sin might be destroyed as his sermon scripture. Finally, they asked Huss if he would recant. Being called upon for his final decision, Huss declared his refusal to abjure, and fixing his penetrating glance upon the monarch whose plighted word had been so shamelessly violated, he declared, I determined of my own free will to appear before this council under the public protection and faith of the emperor here present. A deep flush crimsoned the face of Sigismund, the emperor, as the eyes of all the assembly turned on him. The ceremony of degradation began. The bishops clothed their prisoner in the sacerdotal habit, so they clothed, clothed him as a priest, and as he took the priestly robe, he said, Our Lord Jesus Christ was covered with a white robe by way of insult when Herod had him conducted before Pilate. The priest removed the robe, uh, called him an accursed Judas, being again exhorted to retract, he replied, turning to the people, With what face, then, should I behold the heavens? How should I look upon those multitudes of men to whom I have preached the pure gospel? No, I esteem their salvation more than this poor body, now appointed unto death. His vestments were removed one by one, each bishop pronouncing a curse as he performed his part of the ceremony. Finally, they put on his head a cap or a pyramidal-shaped mitre of paper, on which were painted frightful figures of demons, with the word arch-heretic conspicuously written on the front. 
most joyfully, said Hus, will I wear this crown of shame for thy sake, O Jesus, who for me didst wear a crown of thorns. When he was thus arrayed, the prelate said, Now we devote thy soul to the devil. And I, said John Hus, lifting up his eyes toward heaven, do commit my spirit into thy hands, O Lord Jesus, for thou hast redeemed me. He was led out, delivered to the secular authorities, the magistrates of the town, to the place where he would be executed by burning. On the way, he passed a pile of burning books. He was told that they were his books. He was tied to the stake facing east. People in the crowd objected, saying that's not the proper way for a heretic to die. So they untied him and faced him to the west with a massive chain around his neck. He was exhorted one more time to save himself by renouncing his errors. This is in great controversy, by the way. Chapter 6. What errors, said Hus, shall I renounce? I know myself guilty of none. I call God to witness that I, all that I have written and preached has been with the view of rescuing souls from sin and perdition. And therefore most joyfully will I confirm with my blood that which I have written and preached. When the flames kindled about him, he began to sing, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And so continued until his voice was silenced forever. An eyewitness account was a papist who did not bear him any goodwill. Described the martyrdom of Hus and Jerome who died later. He said both bore themselves with constant mind when their last hour approached. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. When the flames rose, they began to sing hymns, and scarce could the vehemency of the fire stop their singing. Rosanius Silvius. One of the final words Hus uttered at the stake, <coughs> he said, It is thus that you silence the goose, but a hundred years hence there will arise a swan whose singing you shall not be able to silence. This was a prophecy. Even earlier in his career, he had, he had made these kind of statements. He said, after the, the goose will come an eagle, and, and better preachers than myself will come. As he was in the dungeon preparing to, to, to die, he had a dream that he was back in Prague at the chapel where he loved to preach. And there were paintings, there was pictures on the wall that he had painted with his sermons, pictures of, of the face of Christ. And the leaders of the church came and they were scribbling them out and scrubbing them out and effacing them. And this caused Hus distress as he's watching this in his dream. But then all of a sudden other painters come and they replenish the drawings and they draw other uh, drawings and they, they make them very colorful. And Hus saw in this that there would be others to follow after him. And he said there'd be better preachers than myself who would restore the drawings that were defaced. A hundred years hence, he said, there will arise a swan whose singing you shall not be able to silence. He died 
July 6, 1415. It was 1517, 102 years after this, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg and launched the Protestant Reformation. His co-laborer Jerome, as soon as he heard that Huss was arrested, flew to Constance to aid him, but he realized there was nothing he could do, and he left. But he was arrested on the return journey, and he was brought back to Constance, loaded with chains. He was brought before the council. He was not allowed to speak amidst the shouting, to the flames with him, to the flames with him. He was thrown into a dungeon, chained into a very uncomfortable position. He became sick and almost died. They came to him asking him to abjure, and he did. He recanted. It was actually a very qualified recantation. He consented to the condemnation of Huss and Wycliffe, except the holy truths that they taught. It's a quotation. Accept the holy truths that they taught. And he pledged himself to be a sincere adherent of the Catholic faith. But after Huss, or after Jerome made this concession, his conscience bothered him. And he suffered in the prison under the, the burden of this conscience. And he had realized what he had done. He thought of his master, uh, Jesus. He thought, of, he, he thought of John Huss, his friend. Um, he was discouraged because he was sick, because his friend Huss had been killed, because all of his friends had left Constance when Huss had died. And so he fell in a moment of weakness. But on pondering his moves in the dungeon, he decided that he was going to turn back around and make his stand, which he did. When he was brought out before the trial, he begged to be allowed to make his defense. He was told he must only say yes or no to the charges brought before him. He said, you have held me shut up 340 days in a frightful prison, in the midst of filth, noisomeness, stench, and the utmost want of everything. You then bring me out before you, and lending an ear to my mortal enemies, you refuse to hear me. If you be really wise men in the lights of the world, take care not to sin against justice. As for me, I am only a feeble mortal. My life is but little importance. And when I exhort you not to deliver an unjust sentence, I speak less for myself than for you. And he was allowed to give his defense. And he talked about the whole long line of righteous men in sacred history who had been condemned like John was, and they were later seen to be deserving of honor. He recanted his decision to recant. He said it was the most heinous sin he committed was to condemn, was to assent to the condemnation of Huss and Wycliffe. The prelates interrupted him. What need is there of further proof? We behold with our own eyes the most obstinate of heretics. What? Do you suppose that I fear to die? You have held me for a whole year in a frightful dungeon more horrible than death itself. You have treated me more cruelly than a Turk, Jew, or pagan, and my flesh has literally rotted off my bones alive, and yet I make no complaint. 
for lamentation ill becomes a man of heart and spirit. But I cannot but express my astonishment at such great barbarity towards a Christian. Jerome was also condemned. And they brought him the cap that had the demons painted on it so that he'd wear it. When he saw it, he took his own hat, he threw it down, he took the cap and he put it on his own head. Took it as a badge of honor. And he went out singing to the same spot where Huss had died. Lord Almighty Father, he cried, have pity on me and pardon me my sins. For thou knowest that I always have loved thy truth. His voice ceased, but his lips continued to move on in prayer until he passed. The followers of Huss and Jerome later, uh, it's another interesting story, but they later rose up in war. And they had a lot of good success um, until they were betrayed by the council. Um, you may read about it in Great Controversy, chapter 6. But I want to leave with you the example of these men, these righteous men, weak as anybody here, who stood up to death, was able to stood up, stand up to death. They said, bring it on. It's not the end of these stories. And these kind of events will probably happen again soon. In the future, I don't know when. I don't mean to frighten anybody. But study these accounts. Because even though the tragedies may be repeated, the triumphs will also come again. To leave you with the words that Huss had written before he died, he said, I write this letter, he says to a friend, in prison and with my fettered hand, expecting my sentence of death tomorrow. When, with the assistance of Jesus Christ, we shall meet again in the delicious peace of the future life, you will learn how merciful God has shown himself towards me, how effectually he has supported me in the midst of my temptations and trials.